Hey, let's talk millennials. I'm a baby boomer, but you know, I'm trapped in a, a baby boomer body, but I'm really a millennial. I'm, I'm, we're going to get into that in the show. And I wanted to bring one of the biggest leading experts on millennial generation. He's consulted for, you know, almost every Fortune 500 company for the last two decades. He's got a best-selling book, number one on Amazon's business book list. It's the modern day roadmap for corporations, large and small, whether you're a big business, little business alike, how to approach this generation how to have power and influence unlike any other demographic in history. We're talking millennials, and I'm talking about the author of the best-selling book, Youth Nation, Matt Britton, and he's right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Speaking about business, how about starting your own business? It's challenging. You know, dealing with millennials is challenging for some of us, but... Talk about investing in a Liberty Tax service franchise. Think about this. It makes perfect sense. The experience of a supportive team, access to a network of over 4,000 offices, top-notch marketing materials. I'm telling you, I know the CMO personally and the whole marketing team there, and they are awesome. And they will help putting your own business into reach for you and for your future. So find out more at LibertyTaxFranchise.com. And now it's time for us to move on into the show and talk with Matt Britton, America's leading expert on millennial generation. From Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, so the first question I got to ask right out of the bat, you know, we talk about all this millennial stuff, but isn't it just one generation not understanding the next generation? No, I think it's a little bit different. I mean, the gap between Gen X and Gen Y is unlike any other generational gap in history because the millennials were the first generation that grew up with the internet in the household. And the internet was such a major factor in human business cultural development that in many ways, the millennials and all generations after the millennials, so Gen Z and whatever comes after it, is really a different species than all generations before. So I think that the change from Gen Y to Gen Z is going to be nowhere near as stark from Gen X to Gen Y. And that's what I think the major difference is. Why? Is that because we're we're an internet society now, a digital society versus, you know, hey, well, we watch the television? I mean, wasn't it almost the same thing between, I would say, I don't know, what what was the before baby boomers? Which I don't even know what generation that was. (laughs) Really old folks, really old folks. Super old people. Dinosaurs? (laughs) In terms of what? In terms of just the, the different technology? Yeah, I mean, when we think about television, radio, I mean, uh, you know, prior to my my mother and father, you know, I remember yeah. we got the very first color TV set, you know, and yeah. and that kind of changed it. You know, like I grew up watching TV. I mean, that was that was the big thing. But my mother and father didn't. And so now we've got this whole digital, you know, generation, which is really I, you know, I, I consider myself a millennial. The reason I say yeah. that is because the way I operate, you know, in my life, although I would still be a curmudgeon millennial, but, you know, nonetheless. Yeah. Well, I mean, to answer your question, it took the telephone to reach, it took them 100 years, 75 years to reach 100 million users, right? Mm-hmm. It took Facebook three years. It took Instagram two years. So I yeah. think that's really it, is that the rate of change and how quickly 
you know, the internet has changed our society is unlike the telephone or is unlike any other technology before it. And it really has defined a generation in a way unlike any other in history. The acceleration of change and, and its impact on business, its impact on culture, its impact on social issues um, really is really what makes this generation different. So how is this generation, what's the biggest misunderstanding about this generation? I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings. One is that they're sort of self-centered. Um, because I think, yes, they take selfies all the time, but, you know, Gen X in the 90s and early 2000s, they define themselves by buying brands and showcasing themselves through brands in a self-centered sort of way. Um, there's a big misconception about privacy, that this generation cares about privacy. There are some things that they care about privacy for, um, and it's those things that they talk about over Snapchat versus text messages, but they're not really too concerned about their social security number or credit card number getting stolen. So I think that's another misconception. I think a general notion of them being apathetic or lazy, I think, is way off base. I think you have so many young go-getters who are coming uh, you know, into the business world and they're disrupting uh, you know, major institutions that have been around for over a century. Um, I don't necessarily believe in differences on a generational basis. I think every generation has stars. Every generation has negatives to it. Um, I think that the impact of this generation, though, is unlike any other for reasons that we just discussed. Yeah, and the impact mostly because of reach? Reach and speed. You know, I mean, how long would it have taken in the 1990s for somebody to build a business that generated a billion dollars in revenue? Right. So the New York Times was worth more and, you know, worth less than Instagram after only three years of Instagram being in business. Now, obviously, some would say that Instagram didn't generate any revenue. No, but the amount of people it touched was was far greater. So I think the impact to, to markets is so much more disruptive and so much quicker. And, and, and people really feel the reverberating effects. And I like how you said, like, you feel like you're a millennial, because the thing I wrote about in Youth Nation, my book, is that, you know, it's really a frame of mind. You can act like a millennial and you can absorb millennial tendencies at any age, which is another big thing about this generation is that, you know, their impact really spread so quickly up and down um, and really changed the way of lives for everyone. Yeah. What do you think of the characteristics that define a millennial besides the fact of just the age? What do you think are the characteristics that define it? I mean, it's it's mobile first, yeah. really, is probably the, the, the first thing. Everything goes through the phone. Yeah. The phone is the new dashboard for their lives. I think that's one. I think mobile not only means device, but mobile meaning on the go, um, not really wanting to be grounded. You know, they're buying less homes. They want jobs that allow them to be more remote. So it's not really going down that traditional path that I think most of us grew up being taught. And I think that's really a really defining legacy of this generation, because we do have to start talking about the legacy of millennials now that the youngest millennials are 21, 22 years old. You know, sooner or later, millennials are going to be on the older side of old, if you will. So I think we have to start talking about what is the legacy of this generation? Let's talk about this mobile first, because I think that's kind of an interesting thing. I, you know, let me give you a good example of this. You know, I have had offices, buildings, things like that, in the many businesses I've had. And I've always like, no, you got to have an office. you got to have a desk. you got to be there. And now I'm like, I don't care, you know? And, right. and that's, to me, that mobile first kind of thing, like, no, we can be light of foot. I can have you work out of your home. I'm more open to that than I've ever been in my life. Uh, as long as we're connected sure. through a video conferencing or some way I can, you know, reach you 24-7, so to speak. I mean, it's just a different yeah. way of defining it, right? That's right. And I think in that regard, you're seeing this whole kind of free agent boom or freelancer revolution. 
where people are, you know, renting space at WeWork, not going to work for companies, um, and really offering value as a, as a freelancer in a very specialized skill set and proving that notion that you don't need to be not only at the company or in the offices, but even be an employee of the company to have tremendous value to a larger organization. Yeah, and that used to be looked down upon, right? That's right. But what, what's happening is these big, these big companies are moving towards the city. So you look at, you know, Pepsi and Purchase New York or Microsoft and Redmond, Washington or Visa and Foster City. All those companies are starting to create these innovation hubs in the, in their neighboring major cities because that's how they can attract the millennial, young millennial talent. And, the, you know, the tax concessions of having these huge campuses are now far outweighed by having, you know, the, the proximity to this young generation. And when companies are going to start to really move in their headquarters into cities, they're going to contract their full-time workforces and augment it by these freelancers. Yeah, which has just changed. I mean, my own office, I mean, we 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 used to be in an office sharing deal, then went out and got our own. Yeah. And then I had the opportunity yeah. to go back to an office sharing uh, this is in New York. And I said, yeah, we're going to do it because just the, the benefit of that, of the interactions with other people and offices, the thought, the things that we did, even a little tension from time to time, you know, how you organize the, uh, the, the conference rooms and everything else. All of it's good. It makes you think. And I'm about to do it again. I'm going to be partnering coming up here with Damon John. Um, we're, we're, oh, very cool. Yeah, Damon's got his own. In, in his new uh, shared work. Yeah, there. yeah. Damon's a good buddy of mine, good friend. And um, I got to thinking the other day, I said, you know what? Get over it, Jeff. Go do this. And I mean, my gosh, they got stand-up desks. They got everything. I've been pretty excited. Right. Yeah. So uh, my cool. and my team's excited. So um, it's just different, different way of thinking about it. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be that millennial. I'm going to think differently. There we go. So, sure. So I loved your book, Youth Nation. You mentioned that, uh, the book itself. And in the book, I recall you argued that the counterculture of the 60s, I thought this was interesting, has become yep. the culture of today. So t- talk talk about that. How does it impact our business approach and how we communicate? Right. And I think it's done today on a much more larger and accelerated scale. Yeah. So if you looked at the 60s, you know, you had all these people that were protesting the war and protesting the government. And there was this big countercultural revolution where younger people who were before that in the 50s really stifled in their voice tried to create a platform. And you look at Woodstock as kind of the penultimate example of that. Well, today you're seeing that on a much more decentralized and accelerated basis where the movements of tomorrow in business and culture, in some ways even politics, those decisions aren't being made from the boardrooms, they're being made from the sidewalks. You know, these young people are, are starting movements. Um, and when they're starting those movements, they're actually having real impact. So the same way that in the 60s, you know, that that whole hippie revolution had tremendous impact on the future of so many different um, industries and, and really the United States culture and, and society in general, you're seeing that really happen on a much larger scale right now with this generation. It's coming. Well, back. because they're connected and because they have the networks and because they, you know, it used to be, I think that stuff, it was existed in the sixties. They just couldn't get a hold of each other. Right. Well, they would stand on soapboxes and scream in town squares in yeah. front of a hundred people where now you can create a YouTube channel and create videos in front of millions of people. Yeah. So it, it's really, it's really the access at the reach that you have. If you're good and you have a voice, you can really make a huge impact. And if you get lucky every once in a while too. Yeah, luck, yeah, luck doesn't hurt. Yeah, yeah. Back in the sixties, most of them were just stone. They just couldn't do anything about it. They could. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I I think one of the the bad things that I saw in an article in Social Media Week was that millennials uh-huh. are earning twenty percent less than their parents did. You know, so yeah. in your work uh, that you do, and how, does that, how's that? 
correlate to the timing of their integration into the, into the workforce and like what we'd call this post, you know, depression, post-2007 economy? Well, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, you look at how they're spending their money and, you know, the, the version of the American dream for Gen Xers and, and, you know, the boomers and everyone before that was saving up money, getting married, moving out to the suburbs. You have this house with the white picket fence and two-car garage, right? Well, now that version of the American dream has taken a U-turn where this younger generation wants to stay in cities and in doing so they're giving up space and, um, you know, and privacy really for the proximity and connectivity of cities. And when they're doing so, they're not buying apartments in cities because most of them can't afford it because the real estate prices in cities over the last 10 years have skyrocketed, especially relative to suburbs. And they're not really taking up for cars anymore either because the ease and access of Uber combined with the cost of gas, tolls, parking, insurance just makes the whole notion of buying a car not as important. So think about it. Those are the two most important discretionary expenditures that the consumers have made. And many of these consumers don't need to make them anymore. And so, so instead, A, they theoretically need to earn less. They're, you know, they're staying in apartments with other people longer. They're getting married later for the first time in U.S. history. The, you know, the average age of a male having their first baby is over 30 years old. So people are acting younger way further in life, which allows them to put off the pressure of income in a way that maybe we didn't have in the 90s and early 2000s. Matt, doesn't that change things? Doesn't it have a longer-term impact? Don't you think that's going to have some negative impact? I mean, if they're not saving, you know, they're not, uh, you know, building an asset of some kind. Uh, you know, with a house or even with a car for that matter. I, I get the car more than the house yeah. or the apartment or whatever you want to property because property has always been a safe investment. And at the end, I always had that. And so when yeah. I, I could live off of that later on, you know, with the. Yeah, but some would, some would say Gen Xers took the path of going to work for a big organization and working their way up the corporate ladder to the C-suite. And now the average age of a company in the Fortune 500 is less than 10 years old. So I think those tried true paths of the path of the past just don't really exist anymore. So whether it's good or bad, I think it's the future. I think the plus side of that, I guess the counterpoint to that, is that people are much more in control of their earning ability later in life and can pivot to different careers later in life because they can freelance people, because they can learn a marketable skill set or find a product that they can sell directly to consumers. So I think success has really been democratized. And because of that, the potential is always there. But yes, it, it, it'd be much greater if people were building up savings or home equity or things of that nature. But as we saw in 2008, even that isn't tried and true. Hmm. Yeah, but I still think that's got a huge impact in the long term yep. with where our economy and the way we would measure the, the growth of the economy, we would measure the, the health of our nation, I think, True. is a big piece of that. Right, but, but the, and I mean, look at the era of consumerism in the 90s where people would just rack up credit card debt to buy brand after yeah. brand after brand. This, this generation has defined themselves through experiences versus, you know, the, the accumulation of items. So, yes, I mean, all of this is going to have a long-term impact to the, to the economic um, footprint of our country, as is just the barbell economy that, you know, for the first time since the 20s, 0.1% of our population controls 25% of the wealth because the middle America and the, and the middle class is eroding because of, you know, offshoring, outsourcing, et cetera. So there's a lot of factors that are going to change the future economic footprint of this country. So what do you think are some of the factors that we need to be aware of if we're going to hire these younger workers? Um, I think first and foremost is that, for most jobs, say they're, say they're a brand manager for a toothpaste brand, um, mm -hmm. nobody's passionate about toothpaste. It doesn't matter what they say. They don't wake up in the morning and think about toothpaste, right, or deodorant or batteries. Well, if you use it, you think about it, but probably not. Think about it to the extent that you need to use it, and that's basically about it, right? And right. I think these low-involvement categories that so many businesses sort of are centered around – 
really just aren't important to this young generation. And that's okay because people will do it for the income and maybe they can infuse passion into these low involvement categories. But the fact is that most of these people are going to have side hustles. They're going to have other incomes um, coming in, whether they, you know, they're freelancing or whether they have their own little business. And I think that businesses need to embrace that. When, when I was running my um, agency, when we got up to about 500 people, I would always walk around just to you know, say hi to everyone. And people would like switch off from their Gmail tabs. You know, when they when they saw me walking by and I don't want them to do that. I kind of want to know what else they're working on, because I don't think it's good to be 100 percent consumed by your job. But I think a lot of sort of legacy employers, because so many of these big companies, the C-suites are still not filled with millennials. They just don't understand that. So they try to sort of repress or suppress that, you know, the, their staff control. Yeah, control. And, and, and then they'll find other outlets and then they're not loyal to the company and you can't retain them. So I think it's really understanding who the people are and what they're going about. And yes, they're not passionate about toothpaste, but you know what? They can take some of those passions outside and infuse it into a brand and maybe help your business evolve. I think another thing is that, which is just one of the most frustrating things. I've worked with over half the Fortune 500 over the last 20 years. And what I see time and time again, especially as of late, is you see these like big executives talk about Evan Spiegel from Snapchat or Mark Zuckerberg. Like they're these gods or these sort of innovation um, you know, drivers. Yet there's 30, 29-year-olds in their organization, there's seven floors below them that they've never met, that they're not talking to, that have no voice in the future of the company. And their board is full, filled with, you know, basically old white men who don't really understand the future. Some of them do, you know, I, you know but the, the fact is they don't embrace the youth in their organization. A lot of them are on golden parachutes and just kind of want to cash out. And because of that, there's young upstarts that are dis- disrupting them. So what I tell the, to, you know, executives that I feel like are in that vein is you should create a shadow board. You should get a board of five to seven young people that are your young stars. It'll be a retention tool and it'll actually allow you to disrupt yourselves. And you should answer to them once a quarter, just like you have the answer to your shareholders. Because in reality, they are a by product or a mirror of who your shareholders are, which is the future consumer. So you mentioned a word called side hustles or phrase. And I think that's kind of interesting because 10, 10, 15 years ago, if you ran a side hustle and I knew about it, I'd fire your ass. And you're saying that's, that's better to have now? It's okay? I think so. I mean, in my experience, people who have been successful in business are people who have initiative. And if they have initiative in life, they're going to take initiative towards following their passions and they're going to take initiative facing inwards towards your business and finding new nooks and crannies of your business or new ways to expand. And it's really hard to sort of um, ring fence that that desire or that initiative just towards your job because they're, you know, they're paying your bills. And I don't think it's realistic to, to, to expect somebody to do so. Yeah, but how do you outline that so it, you, you don't, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're not being taken advantage of so that they're using your time, your resources to do those kind of things. I, I do know I have a couple of employees who got side hustles on different things and they're not necessarily sure. related to what I do. So it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I, I got to make sure I just I'm concerned about if they're using my time and we just have good conversations about that. I mean, how do you define the conditions of satisfaction around allowing them the, the freedom to do that and then not feel that you're being taken advantage of? I don't think the success variable is time. I think the success variable is output and value. So I think that if I had an employee who was working eight hours a day, but only two of them were spending on my business, but the things they were doing during those two hours were moving the needle, I don't care what they do the other six hours of the day if that allows me to keep them. 
So I think, you know, the days of clocking in and out and focusing on an hourly productivity, I don't think productivity is done on an hourly basis. I think, you know, it's almost the opposite. I think people need to figure out um, how they can deploy whatever their employee is best at and, and, you know, and, and least expendable in. And how do you focus that output towards your business? And that doesn't always take out eight hours a day. Right. And if you can get it done in two or three, is it worth it? Hmm. Interesting question, you know. I think that's kind of an interesting question. So millennials are now taking over the Jenners, right, in, in terms of the largest demographic in the workforce, but yeah. but also management positions now, right? I mean, they're starting to. Yeah. So millennials are starting to fill the C-suite. Uh, they're not quite there yet. Yeah. And when they do, you're going to see a lot of this change accelerate. Well, it changes. I, I mean, just the the way they go about thinking about where the success of the company is, right? It's it's certainly changed the face. I think of advertising, where it used to be much more subjective. Now it's more quantitative, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you would think so, but you still have you know a lot of CMOS who are golf buddies with the CEO of a Madison Avenue agency. They're spending eighty percent of their dollars on on television commercials that nobody watch with creative that's completely subjective and not, you know, well enough tested. I mean, you you still see a lot of laggard brands that, you know, are operating in the nineteen ninety five world and thinking that that's going to be their path to continue to drive their business. Yeah, that's gonna go away though. I mean that the writing's yeah. on the wall for that. When though? When? You know, like you'd think that it would happen already. You would think the tipping point would already be there, man. Right? Here's the tipping point is that Amazon and Apple just announced that they're making um, actual television devices. And, you know, young, young kids, there's a couple of things true about the Gen Z. They have no idea what a television network is. So we were growing up, we knew NBC must see Thursday night, right? We knew what networks were. They meant something. They mean nothing to these kids. And they walk up to TV sets and they try to swipe them <laughs> because what the TV is going to become one day is a giant iPad hanging on your wall. And in that world, you know, Joe's Pizza can advertise during the Super Bowl. Just like, you know, um, Papa John's or Domino's can. They could just do so programmatically targeting a small subset of people within one mile of the location. I think it all starts with actually the hardware and the device. And the hardware has been disconnected. It hasn't been merged with the computing device. But I think with Apple and Amazon seeing that they want to own the living room, own that ecosystem, I think that starts to create a real tipping point that we haven't seen. Yeah, you own the community. You have your own broadcast network. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's and that's and that's what I've said for a long, long time and stuff that, that we're doing with C-Suite TV, C-Suite Radio, as we do here. Look, let's go. Let's go get to the people that want to listen or watch. Let's build a trusted network with them and then let's feed that network, man. Feed the engine. Yep. Although, but but networks are really people. I yeah. Mean, brands are people. People are brands. So I think an individual can be a network. You know, I'd argue that Kardashians are a much bigger network right now than than a lot of the Viacom networks mm-hmm. or news and Fox. Networks. They and have Fox. More, yeah. yeah, yeah. They have, they have a more engaged audience. Mm-hmm. Um, they're individuals, but it doesn't really matter to the consumer. They're tuning into them to follow their lives the same way they would tune into a TV yeah, show. Yeah, tra- it's called the Trashy Network, though, isn't it? I think it's called the Trashy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, I, I kid you, Kim. I kid you. Don't don't yell at me next time I see you. And, you yeah, know. they're actually. You know, it's funny. Like I actually think the Kardashians get a bad rap. Because I think that there's a lot of things that they do for young women in terms of like being entrepreneurial and and being confident in their business ventures. That's great. And I think, you know, I think that they have gotten a bad rap based upon, you know, the source of their fame. Mm -hmm. But as they grow, you kind of can start to see some of the, you know, ways that they can maybe be a good influence. You hope, you'd hope. I would hope so. But, you know, I, and I do think you're right. I think they're pretty smart young women for the most part. And I think they marry bad. That's what I would say. 
I think they marry very badly. Right. Because the guys that they're hanging around for, mo- for the most part, just real losers. Couple, at least a couple of them are. Anyway, that's my two cents on that one. So, you know, <laughs> how did you get? How did you get into this side of the business, Matt? Yeah. Um, well, I went to school at Boston University, and I was a big nightclub promoter there, handing out flyers. And by the time I graduated, I had a little bit of an empire in terms of throwing these huge events um, all over the city in Boston. So a hustler. You, know? you were a hustler. I was a hustler, and I still yeah. am. <laughs> but what started to happen is a lot of the local businesses started to ask, you know, can we sponsor your event? Can we put our, our logo on your flyer? Can we set up a table or hang up a banner inside your parties? And that started me to get to have a close relationship with businesses, and albeit they were sort of local and regional businesses. And I started to work with them, sort of run their own campaigns to reach a young audience. And that was right about the time when the internet first became a thing on college campuses. Um, and I started in basically an agency, and I quickly went past local and regional businesses to some of the really first web 1.0 startups like eBay and Yahoo, and really start to create some of their initial campaigns targeting college students, um, build up a business. Unfortunately, then the bubble burst in 2000. A lot of my clients went bankrupt. Um, so I had to kind of sell the company, but I call it selling a company, but it was really having an organization bail me out <laughs> um, called Alloy. They bought my organization. Um, I moved to New York, learned about real brands, um, you know, the PNGs and Cokes of the world, and then left um, that organization in 2002 to start my agency, uh, Mr. Youth, which became MRY, which I ended up running uh, for about 12 and a half years before it was acquired by the publicist. Mm, very interesting. So let's get back a little bit to the millennials. Oh, one more thing on that. I'd, I'd like to know management styles, yeah. totally yeah. different, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, you know, I think management styles of old was kind of super quantitatively driven, which is, you know, what are the, what are the numbers? Are you submitting like your TPS reports on time? If you saw them in the office, you know, that's how it kind of worked. And I think now you really have to break down those walls. I mean, the way I like to manage employees is I look at them on the same level and I keep my door always open. If if some people don't even have doors Um, and, you know, it's really understanding that you're not above them kind of on the societal basis, if your company is sort of a microcosm of society, you need to look at them almost like a peer. Yes, you're their boss. Yes, you sign their paychecks. But as soon as you create those boundaries and levels, then I don't think they're able to be open around you and really able to share really the value that they were meant to share. And I think that's where I've been successful with my organizations. To me, that really breeds great culture. Mm -hmm. So, but, but it's hard for people to switch like that, to, to say, Hey, you know, I, I get the power seat, so to speak, and now I got to give it up. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you're really securing yourself, you know, you're not really giving it up. Yeah. In fact, that's just empowering you right. more, I think. But there's a lot of people that aren't able for ego or because of legacy thinking aren't actually able to get there. So you have to call the assistant's assistants to go 10 floors up and meet them once a year. Yeah where in reality, you really need to break down those walls and see what's really going on. Because what starts to happen is leaders get disconnected with what's really going on with their employees, with their culture, and really their industry. And then that's when you see companies get blindsided. You know, why, why is Toys R Us filing for bankruptcy? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, obviously, everybody could say Amazon, but I would argue that there's been so many industries that have been able to sort of create rising companies that sell direct to consumers like Warby Parker, right? Like, you know, you could buy eyeglasses on Amazon. Like, so why, why didn't Toys R Us create that? It's because the leadership at some point got disconnected and didn't move quickly enough and weren't listening to their employees. And that's only one of hundreds, if not thousands of examples. Yeah. And, then, and but still not every digital company is going to make it. I mean, what's good, a good example. You just mentioned Warby Parker, but let's talk about Quirky. Uh-huh. I mean, Quirky was a, 
I mean, that had all the markings of, whoa, what a cool site, what a cool place, but yet they, they sold shit nobody wanted. So, Of yeah. course. But it's one thing if a, start, if a venture-funded startup doesn't make it. It's another thing if a company that's around for 100 years that employs thousands of people goes out of business just because they made the wrong decision. Yeah, change, adapt, or die, my friends. That's the name of the game. Yeah. Change, adapt, or die. That's right. Well, what's, what's on tap for you next? So um, I took over in January of a software company called CrowdTap that I had actually incubated within my agency and spun out as a standalone uh, company, which then raised a bunch of venture capital. And we're doing some really interesting things. CrowdTap was originally as an influencer marketing company, but we've uncovered an incredible um, sort of opportunity in real-time intelligence or real-time market research um, under the premise that every business person needs to be really data-driven, every decision they make. People shouldn't make decisions based upon myopic thinking or just, you know, the, the closest available option. They should be testing everything with their audience because you can. So I'm really focused on this notion of real-time business intelligence, and we're creating some incredible new products for our clients um, in that space. So I'm super focused on that. So doing a lot of speaking, um, I do about 60 to 80 um, speaking engagements a year just to you know, around the things that we're talking about, the changes that this generation is bringing to culture and society and um, thinking about my next book and, you know, just having a lot of fun. Having some fun. That's the name of the game. Make yeah. a little money, do some new things, learn a little bit and uh, and have fun. I mean, you can't ask for yeah, much. I also love sort of like mentoring young people and seeing them grow. At this point, you know, in my career, I, I just the fact that I can see people who I've hired out of college then go on to get great roles at other companies is definitely one of the biggest joys um, of what I do. Isn't it cool to do that? I really think that's really neat. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, it's kind of like having another child. To be honest with you, I don't. I, yeah. I don't want people well, you're listening in. You don't need to put them through college. Yeah, don't think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except I didn't have to pay for it exactly. Right. <laughs> well, my friend, hey, what a pleasure, Matt Britton, right here, talking about uh, Youth Nation, talking about the new counterculture of the millennial. Used to be talking about that in the '60s, but now we're talking about it right here in 2017, going into 2018, and we're talking millennials and what it needs, what you need to do to get a get ahead in this audience. So, Matt, thank. Thanks so much for joining me right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about the things I learned. I enjoyed this conversation. I know a lot of people like to talk about millennials or and some people in a bad way and some people in a good way. Um, I really like the thought process about how they're thinking mobile first, you know, mobile first. You know, in fact, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Mark Zuckerberg starts off a meeting at, at Facebook when they start showing him. And if there's not a mobile option that's presented right up front, he doesn't want to talk to you. He cancels the meeting. But here's the other thing I learned. Output and value versus how many hours you spend at work. I got to think through that one a little bit more. How do I put that into into my own operation so I don't get so upset when people take off early, right? Um, it used to be you put in long hours, you, you stay there after the boss, and anyone that leaves beforehand um, kind of frowned upon. Well, you know, Matt's opening up my eyes. Maybe I need to be thinking about output and value more and more conversations around those conditions of satisfaction and maybe even to let people include those side hustles. Hey, how about this guy on my team? You're listening right now. You're doing a side hustle. You better cut me in. 
<laughs> I learned that right here and um, right here on All Business. And don't forget all the other shows that you can listen to on C-Suite Radio. You know, we've got about 60 podcasts out there. So you got to be able to find something you like besides just my show. So tune in and listen. Go to C-Suite Radio and find All Business with Jeffrey Aza. Pass it on to a friend and then go find another show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.